Africa is a large continent and a diverse continent. Many different peoples, ethnic groups, tribes, these terms overlap, but are not synonymous. They speak more than a thousand languages in Africa. They're organized into more than 50 nation states. Most of those nation states achieved independence in the aftermath of World War II as European imperialism and colonialism died out in few African lands as political stability and prosperity followed. And today, Africa is threatened by new predators, violent and vicious jihadists, kidnapping, killing, and committing a long list of other crimes. Africa also is threatened by what I'm going to call neo-imperialism, not European variety. Dr. J. Peter Pham was the first ever United States Special Envoy for the Sahel region of Africa. Before that, Ambassador Pham served as the U.S. Special Envoy for the Great Lakes region of Africa. He's also been a denizen of think tanks. Currently, he is a distinguished fellow at the Atlantic Council. But his first D.C. think tank affiliation, I'm proud to say, was as an adjunct senior fellow at FDD. In addition, he was a tenured associate professor of justice studies, political science, and Africana studies at James Madison University, and director of the school's Nelson Institute for International and Public Affairs. He's the author of more than 300 essays and reviews, and the author, editor, or translator of over a dozen books, primarily on African history, politics, and economics. I'm Cliff May, and I'm pleased that we're going to be talking with him today here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are... Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. Welcome, Ambassador Pham. Let's start with uh, let's start with the penetration of jihadists into Africa. There's Al Shabaab in the Horn of Africa, Boko Haram in Nigeria. The Islamic State is in the Sahel, such countries as Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger, and Chad. Jihadi terrorist groups also have been active much further south. For example, there's Ansar al-Sunnah in Mozambique. What, what does the trend line look like to you? Well, the trend line, not surprisingly, is uh, a, gl- a grim one. And we've known this all along, uh, probably about 15, 16 years ago, I pointed out that in what was then Al-Qaeda's monthly magazine, uh, Sot, uh, Al-Jihad, a uh, fellow by the name of Abu Azam wrote a piece about Africa being the next land of the jihad, laying out the strategic case actually quite well for why Africa should be a focal point, both in terms of resources meaning human resources as well as uh, material resources to be had, geography, strategic interests. He made a pretty compelling case. And so it's been in the target sites of jihadists globally for some time. And not surprisingly, as they've waxed and waned elsewhere, as the Islamic State has met at least defeat on the battlefield in Iraq and Syria, Increasingly, you see more activity in Africa. Some of this is based on longstanding activism, seeds planted a long while back. Some of it is exploiting local conflicts, but it's certainly taken off. And as you laid out, Cliff, this arc ranging from North Africa across the Sahel all the way down to now as far south as Mozambique. And uh, and the damage there that's being done by these jihadists. I don't know if people understand. For example, in Nigeria, something like, as I understand it, 350,000 people, 350,000 have been killed by jihadists with children under five, under five, accounting for nine out of 10 killed. 
and with, uh, according to the UN, 170 dying every day. I mean, this is not prominent, certainly, in, in, the, in the media. Uh, I, I, I guess one question is, I mean, are, are there, is there any significant and, and successful pushback? I know that, you know, I, look, I know the Nigerian uh, army is, 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 is trying to fight uh, Boko Haram. I'm just not sure how successful the African military forces and governments are against these jihadis. Well, there's been some success, although the success often uh, has unintended consequences. For example, after fits and starts, there has been a joint force developed among the G5, the five principal Sahelian countries, Mauritania, Mali, Niger, Burkina Faso, and Chad, which has managed to inflict some damage to both the Al-Qaeda affiliate in the region, as well as the Islamic State affiliate. But the irony of uh, some of this progress, which has occurred in Mali and Niger in particular, is that the pushed on uh, those two sides, the jihadists have spilled into a country that was largely untouched for a long time, Burkina Faso. Uh, in the year I served as special envoy for the Sahel, uh, literally a million people were displaced in Burkina Faso uh, mm-hmm. it, during 2020. So it's extraordinary the uh, the damage and how it, it continues to spread. How, how are these jihadi groups? How are they being being funded? Is it coming out of out of the, out of the Gulf states, uh, out of rich princes? Are they living off the land? I mean, how how do they manage to have, have weapons, have ammunition, have food, have logistics to be as effective as they are? Well, uh, a couple things need to be uh, understood, uh, Cliff. One is the cost of maintaining a terrorist group or jihadist insurgency in these areas is relatively low. These are exceptionally poor countries. They're at the bottom of the UN human development list. So the amount of money required is very minimal. And the cost of weapons, uh, first, they flow out of Libya after the the overthrow of Muammar Gaddafi. Uh, plus the uh, local manufacture of weapons, which has increased exponentially over the last years, makes the, the cost, it's relatively cost effective, if you will, to engage in this. So that doesn't require much money. And a lot has been gained. Uh, Al-Qaeda's affiliate in the uh, Islamic Maghreb, uh, for example, in the Sahel, has over the years banked away uh, for years a huge uh, reserve based on kidnapping for ransom of Westerners whose governments uh, pay millions of dollars in ransoms uh, to working with drug traffickers, offering them protection uh, uh, for cocaine smuggling routes, et cetera, which also reap money. And there's kidnapping for ransom, which has taken off uh, like gangbusters in Nigeria. Uh, you know, Just since the beginning of this year alone, over a thousand school children have been kidnapped in Nigeria in mass uh, kidnappings. And the governments, whether state or federal, have paid ransoms just to avoid the political embarrassment that further enriches uh, some of these groups. And that's just a thousand s- school children. I think the statistic is close to 3,000 Nigerians altogether have been kidnapped for ransom. Uh, and then there's the taxation of areas they control, the so-called zakat uh, that they impose upon uh, communities in their areas. So a kind of tax, yeah, together. a religious uh, tax, I guess you'd say. Yeah. Yes. So uh, altogether, all uh, so it doesn't require much money, and there are plenty of opportunities to uh, to to gain it. And there's exploitation of natural resources as well. We see that not only in the Sahel with gold, but also Eastern Congo, where an affiliate of the Islamic State uh, has arisen in the east uh, out of groups that had been there for some time. And there, that's a mineral-rich area, a lot of artisanal mining going on. So again, another opportunity to make money. You know, uh, we, we, you mentioned and I mentioned that, that children are so often the victims of these jihadist groups. But there's also this in Burkina Faso, which is also in West Africa, used to be called Upper Volta years and years ago. There was a recently a massacre in which more than 130 people were killed. It was carried out mostly by children between the ages of 12 and 14, according to the government. And a little bit, I know about this, these assailants raided a village 
In June, they opened fire on residents. They burned homes, worst attack in years. And again, the majority of the attackers, according to the Burkina Faso government, were these children who have been recruited and trained. I mean, it's really a form of of just dreadful child abuse. It is. And uh, one of the things that uh, uh, we have to remember is nothing occurs in isolation. And, you know, these jihadists are learning lessons from earlier insurgents and rebels. Uh, This is a tactic we've seen. uh, And you've you've reported uh, as a journalist from West Africa clip. We saw this 20, 25 years ago in the wars of the civil wars of West Africa in places like Sierra Leone, where that madman, Fode Sanko, recruited children and then forced them to commit atrocities as a way of breaking their bonds with their communities to make them fearful uh, of ever going back and therefore keeping their loyalty. So uh, these jihadists uh, easily learn lessons. They're, they're not ashamed to learn best practices, if you will. And I think that's what we're seeing them emulate in many of these places. Right, right, right. No, absolutely. This puzzles me too. So in West Africa, in the Sahel, uh, you have, take a country like Nigeria, the South is mostly Christian, some animist. The North is Muslim. Years ago, as you say, when I was a correspondent there, relations were not always entirely amicable, but they were generally peaceful. Now, then you get the radicalization, often from foreign sources of the Muslims, and suddenly they're burning the churches of their Muslim neighbors, or they're killing people because they hold a beauty contest, which is which is haram, which is forbidden. What surprises me a little bit, a place like Mozambique, I didn't, I would not have thought there were many Muslims to radicalize in a place like Mozambique, which is so much further, further south. Am I wrong about that? Or are they infiltrating in a, in a different way? Well, the very northern part of Mozambique, uh, Cabo Delgado province, has historically always had a uh, a large Muslim community. Uh, th- it's the remnant of uh, of that what was once the great Omani uh, Swahili Empire uh, around the Indian Ocean, uh, and it's a population, a community that has largely been neglected. They're minority within Mozambique uh, uh, as a whole, politically marginalized. Uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, uh, not all having to do with religion or ethnic, but more ethnic identity and location. But that marginalization, that sense of political isolation, underdevelopment, certainly gives fertile ground for the outside elements uh, to come in, radicalize, and uh, and build upon local grievances. This is the the cleverness, if you will, of the jihadists penetration of Africa is exploiting in every place a slightly different localizing uh, their global uh, jihad. Hmm. Um, Not terribly well known is that the U.S. does have some military deployments in Africa, small, very, as I understand it, uh, these are training and assistance missions in scattered number of places. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And also, not least, are these deployments effective? Uh, I think, bang for buck, uh, I think one of the uh, one would argue one would argue the best some of the best values that we had in our military budget is the very 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 small amount that we spend on the U.S. Africa Command, which is the military uh, uh, organization responsible for the entire. African continent. Uh, its budget is minuscule compared with CENTCOM or or Indo-PACOM. Uh, its forces are very small, but uh, the bang for the buck is extraordinary. Uh, we're talking about deployments in, you know, uh, the, usually in very small numbers. Uh, largest uh, installation in Africa is Camp Le Monnier, uh in Djibouti, which has a number of functions, but and that's a very small footprint. But the point, mainly, as you say, training equipment, advising, sometimes even use advising by uh, remotely. Uh, in fact, uh, the airstrike uh, called out uh, earlier this week upon uh, some Shabab terrorists attacking a Somali unit that was trained by the U.S. Uh, was all done with remote uh, advising. It wasn't even accompanied uh, advising, which is kind of an interesting. Uh, modern twist on uh, technology and uh, 
deployment. So, but I think very, very effective. And certainly I would make the argument and have made it both in government out that the small investment we make uh, in terms of the fight against jihadists, against terrorists, but also in great power competition uh, against China and other rivals, the small investment in in the military in Africa is handsomely uh, paid back. You know, the, the, the French have historically had a, a great... I would say uh, affection for their 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 former colonies, and uh, you've had French forces um, in, for a long time in, in Chad. Uh, that was that has been the base, the place where they based their anti-terrorist operations for Western Africa and Sahel. Um, French Foreign Legion. Recently, French President Emmanuel Macron said he was ending France's counterterrorism operation in the Sahel as part of a plan to replace it with a broader international force. I'm kind of puzzled whether there's really something going on here that's useful or whether he's hiding the fact that he's kind of giving up and going home. Well, I think he's finally realizing uh, the limit of capability. France's in recent years, uh, and this gets to, uh, you know, whatever one may think or argue or quibble with former President Trump's uh, uh, complaining about European allies not spending sufficiently on def- on the common defense. What everyone, uh, you know, uh, may, about how he went about it or uh, whatever, there's a kernel, there's a great truth in the, uh, 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 a kernel of truth in all that. And the fact is the French military is not up to the hauteur, if one uh, can use a French term, uh, of their predecessors. Their their capabilities are much more limited. Uh, they're stretched, uh, especially with the deployment of troops uh, in uh, the French homeland to guard against terrorist attacks and others. They're stretched to the limit, and their capabilities are much more limited than their ambitions. So this is, I think, an acknowledgement, a faith-saving acknowledgement that they're they they. They've reached limit. There's also another part of this. Uh, I would also say, and the, uh, the French have, in re- I saw this in government, very often sacrificed long-term sustainability and strategic success for short-term, uh, if you will, solutions driven by uh, or purported solutions driven by the political calendar back at home. In this case, Macron's uh, re-election next year or his attempt to get re-elected next year. So things are being driven, short-term considerations rather than long-term capacity building. Uh, we uh, we can get into those weeds, but uh, very often they took the shortcut and uh, I'm not sure that's sustainable or in everyone's common interest in the long-term. Uh, but just last point on this, if, if I'm a jihadi leader in, say, Mali, and I hear the French are sort of withdrawing, I got to figure this is good news for me that, uh, that my chances of uh, of making progress are going to increase markedly in the in, over the, the years ahead. Uh, certainly. And I think part of that, again, getting back to what I just said, has to do with the, rather than investing in building up local forces, uh, the type of training equipment mission we were talking about, the French often, you know, the French operation Barkhan, which has achieved a number of successes and we've worked with them and they've eliminated some high value terrorists, but uh, often doing it themselves gets it done quickly, but it's at the cost of building up local partners who will be able to sustain this in the long term. And when the, you know when the French say, "Well, it's going to be a, an international for, force," who does that mean? It's not going to be the Germans, I don't think. It's not going to be the English, I don't think. And there's not much appetite in the U.S. either among Republicans or Democrats. I I, I wouldn't imagine that we can make the case. I'm happy to have you do so. That there should be for increasing our military commitment uh, to African countries who are trying to stave off uh, the jihadist threat. Well. Uh- Again, uh, my my point of view is that what we should invest in, uh, both as the United States and longer, is long-term capacity building, uh, engaging the African countries and building up their own internal, uh, you know, what we used to call internal defense uh, with the special forces. That's what that's the long-term investment that will pay off. Uh, what the French have uh, done in recent years has gotten a grab bag of uh, of various European countries to sign up and 
send deployments on six month, one year rotations to help beef them up. But at one point, uh, you know, the, the, you, you almost feel sorry for the African partners who, you know, six for six months, their their training missions led by the Spaniards and six months later, the Czechs are leading it. And with the variety of doctrine and training, uh, their heads are spinning uh, in the process. So on paper, the force levels are the same, but the constant churn isn't helpful either. All right. So I want to move on to the other threat that I mentioned in the introduction, and that is uh, the, while the U.S. and the French and others may, may be uh, very, uh, very much limiting their commitments to Africa, the, the, Beijing, the Chinese Communist Party, uh, Xi Jinping, he sees Africa as a big opportunity, and particularly what they call the Belt and Road Initiative, which claims to be helping with infrastructure and development. Um, my FDD colleagues. Bradley Bowman and Morgan Vigna last month published an essay, and it detailed how China's rulers are, and I'm going to quote here, using UN peacekeeping in particular to cloak and facilitate the mercantilist extraction of natural resources from Africa while gaining valuable deployment experience for the People's Liberation Army and attempting to shift international norms in a direction hostile to human rights. In other words, uh, Beijing is looking for resources in Africa, natural resources, farmland. Um, they are um, also using UN peacekeeping, which the U.S. pays the largest share of, and they're, and they're using it for their own nationalistic and mercantile um, purposes rather than sincerely for, for African development. Do you agree with all that? Uh, yes. Uh, you know, this is the, uh, uh, totally agree with, uh, with, uh, Morgan and, uh, uh, your other FDD colleagues yeah, yeah. on this, uh, on this one. Uh, it's, it's something I warned about way back when China first got involved in UN peacekeeping for the first time in Liberia, uh, back in 2003. Uh, I already saw that, uh, with construction that they built, which, benefited actually subsequent Chinese investment, the construction carried out under UN peacekeeping auspices. Uh, so they already established that early on. Uh, the the other, the, the interesting thing is, as you say, is how they use UN peacekeeping because that leaves us, the United States, footing the bill for it. Uh, we pay roughly a quarter of all UN. So if you can get it under UN peacekeeping, they get to send us a quarter of the bill for it, uh, which is almost, it, it's literally insult on injury. Mm -hmm. uh, but long-term, I think the debt that's piled up, it's not just the building of infrastructure yeah. which Africa needs, but the debt, the the quality of the infrastructure, uh, and then the the debt that's piled, which is you know, unsustainable. A good example, the, uh, the Republic of Congo, Congo-Brazzaville, it's a country of about 5 million people. The debt, uh, to China is estimated, it's not very transparent, but best estimate is $6 billion mm. in debt for, that 5 million people are carrying on their backs. Uh, that's not sustainable. Uh, Djibouti, less than a million people, billions in debt. And it's a very vital uh, uh, strategic country. It's Ethiopia's access to the sea. It's It's also the location of the, the one permanent U.S. base on the African continent. And the Chinese are, having, uh, are using the port facilities for military purposes there, are they not? They, they are. And uh, irony of ironies, uh, the, the, the port facilities they're using uh, were constructed in part by the U.S. Navy, the Seabees. Hmm. So, uh, again, you know, uh, so, but, you know, there is an example. Uh, I wrote a piece uh, 13 years ago, at the time the the outgoing Bush administration invited the Chinese to be, quote unquote, responsible stakeholders and to help in anti-piracy operations, I warned at the time this was short-sighted because there was an opening. And true enough, 13 years later, what's happened? China has since then maintained a permanent naval presence off the east coast of Africa that wasn't there before they were invited to to join us in anti-piracy operations. The first ever uh, 
Chinese military base outside of China was built in Djibouti. Uh, a long range expeditionary capability that the People's Liberation Army Navy didn't have pre-2008, they now have. Uh, so all of these are knock-on effects of a, again, short-sighted uh, uh, decision made uh, in a moment to perhaps spare some costs. You know, one other example I'm going to mention to you, and I'd like to hear your comments on, the, the, the People's Republic of China, they're building um, a rail line, the Mombasa-Nairobi Standard Gauge Railway. Now, it sounds great because Nairobi's in the highlands and more or less in the center of the country, Mombasa's on the shore. It's very important to have good uh, transportation and communication between the two for all sorts of economic reasons. There is a train that goes um, between the two cities. I've taken it many, many years ago. It was kind of run down even then, although wonderful viewing of the planes and the animals and all that. Um, the Chinese say, see how we're helping Kenya to develop. This is wonderful. But according even to the Daily Nation, which is the most circulated newspaper in Kenya, this project is alleged to be <laughs> unimaginably corrupt and overpriced, according to this report in this Kenyan newspaper. Um, hundreds of millions of Kenyan shillings have been spent entertaining Chinese officers, over a billion, billion shillings for grass along the runway, um, putting, again, what you say, putting the Kenyans in significant, uh, significant debt and, and depriving them of, of, of sovereignty over the long term. Now, China's refuted these reports as false and one-sided, um, but I'm, I, I, I'm, I have little trust in, in, in what the, the Chinese communists have to say about these projects. No, and uh, often now, uh, it's not transparent even uh, what the real costs are uh, down the line. In, in many cases, we've discovered that the, what countries have done is mortgage their future natural resources uh, uh, in exchange for infrastructure. Uh, uh, that may be of dubious quality, or even if it's of decent quality, they've mortgaged it at highly unfavorable terms. Uh, I remember uh, one at that time recently elected uh, African president, democratically elected, who showed me confidentially the contract his predecessor had signed uh, with China, which if they uh, fell in arrears in repaying their debt, uh, the Chinese were entitled to take their oil, but they weren't going to take their oil at the market price of crude. They were going to, they were going to take the oil in repayment at $10 a barrel. Uh, I don't suspect that you and I will ever will live to see $10 a, uh, a barrel oil in our lifetimes. Uh, so it's a wonderful deal. Uh, uh, essentially, the returns on that deal are astronomical uh, for the Chinese, uh, even assuming you know, for the sake of argument, that the infrastructure they gave was of the value they claimed it was worth, which, you know, uh, I think is a debatable proposition. So there are all sorts of these things. Or there's a case in the Congo, which fortunately the the government of the uh, President Felix Tshisekedi is now investigating, but signed by his predecessor, which was supposedly a uh, the Chinese would get would build a, would get access to a mine. Uh, and then turn it over to the Congolese in 15 years, uh, and then the Congolese would own it. Well, in 15 years, they'll probably have emptied it of anything of value, and so the Congolese get a hole in the ground uh, 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 in exchange for uh, supposed infrastructure that that will uh, be built, which is a dubious proposition itself. You know, one thing I want to just emphasize here, colonial well, imperialism, Predatory imperialism. When people talk about it, they're talking about you know the Europeans in the last century or the century before. This is predatory. It seems to me predatory imperialism taking place right now, which has not caught the attention, which has not seemed to be a major cause of concern among those in Europe and America who say I am anti-imperialist. But it, but but the the current incarnation of it. They seem to miss. Plus, it's not just, I think, imperialism. It's also colonialism in this respect. When the Chinese come in with these projects, they generally don't 
employ and train a lot of Africans to carry them out. They bring in their own workers and they bring in their own technologists and engineers and others. And often they, they set them up in what amount to settlements, what amount to little colonies in Africa. And African or local laws often don't apply there. People don't dare. The Chinese do what they want to do. And whether or not the Chinese will come back to China when these projects are finished or whether they'll just stay on in these settlements is not clear. Am I, am I exaggerating here, Peter? No. Uh, you know, it, it's hard to come by uh, data. It's hard to come. But anecdotally, one sees it happening. Uh, one sees oftentimes uh, these contract workers, we'll call them that, uh, uh, from China working on construction, whatever it is, and then afterwards settling down uh, and with the help of helpful access to credit and supplies going into business and often driving uh, local African entrepreneurs out of the market because they don't have access to the same so- suppliers, the same favorable credit terms, uh, et cetera. There's, uh, there's on, the, on the road between uh, Johannesburg and Pretoria in South Africa, there's a, there's a a place called that's known as China Mart, uh, and it's a huge wholesale operation, uh, which anyone can go and buy to stock up their local shop. But interestingly enough, uh, what the 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 Chinese uh, uh, shopkeepers, etc., get access to credit that African shopkeepers don't. Yeah. Um, I was not aware until you kind of signaled this to me that in addition to China, Russia has taken an interest in Africa and it's not a, it, it may not be a healthy interest. Talk a little bit about what, what you, you know Russia is doing in, in, in Africa. Well, uh, immediately after the Cold War, Russia retreated from Africa, closed a number of embassies and downgraded uh, relations. But under Putin, as it's uh, grown assertive elsewhere. It has reopened the closed embassies, and but what it's done it very, very strategically uh, in its reengagement. Uh, Russia doesn't have the resources the old Soviet Union did to pump into Africa, so it chooses its engagements uh, very carefully to get maximum effect uh, for its ruble, so to speak. A good example is what's happened in the Central African Republic, a country that's racked by civil conflict, uh, poverty, all sorts of challenges. And therefore, a very minimal investment. Uh, Russian military contractors led by the Wagner Group. Uh, uh, with, uh, you explain what the Wagner Group is. People may not know, and it's, it's important and interesting. <laughs> it's an interesting group led by so-called uh, Putin's chef, uh, a guy named Prigozhin, who uh, also has supplied Russian mercenaries for Syria and and other conflicts, but they went in there and have essentially taken over the state to the point where publicly the national security advisor of the president of the Central African Republic is a guy whose name is uh, Vasily Zakharov, a very Central African name there for you, <laughs> uh, and, and literally uh, is the national security advisor uh, of the country. And in fact, to get access to President Twadera, uh, one is essentially uh, constrained to go through the Russian security and advisors that have now surround him. Very low cost. Uh, and what are they after? One, uh, st- on the strategic geopolitical level, that, of course, exercises the French in a way that uh, uh, it's hard to describe for those who haven't seen it. And so the French end up pouring resources into trying to counter this uh, and drag other allies along with them. And so for a very low investment, Putin ties down resources from the Western uh, countries that might be deployed against him elsewhere. Secondly, there are the natural resources of the country, which uh, these allegedly private Russian uh, interests now gain access to. So uh, it's it, one has to, in a way, admiringly say uh, it's a brilliant geopolitical and geoeconomic play on the part of Putin causes maximum disruption, maximum angst uh, for very minimal investment. So it's very forward-looking. 
another subject I want you to address a little bit, Peter, that I didn't mention in the introduction. It's a homegrown problem, I guess you might say, which is separatism, tribalism, ethnic conflicts, intranational conflicts. Many African nations are plagued by, 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 such, by such conflicts right now. Well, uh, this is one of those uh, legacies of the colonial period that keep on giving, so to speak. Uh, the, the borders of uh, African countries were drawn up by the colonial powers at the end of the 19th century without respect to uh, ethnic groups, tribal uh, groups, or even in some cases pre-existing uh, political entities or even proto-states or even states. And so uh, at independence, you had these heterogeneous uh, uh, populations thrown together. And in a few cases, you had visionary independence leaders who worked very hard and built uh, a sense of national uh, cohesion out of it. Uh, uh, you know, you see that in places like Ghana, Tanzania, uh, where there is a pride and a sense of nationhood that was built up. Uh, despite the colonial legacy. But in very many, in many other places, leaders fell back to what they were most comfortable with, uh, uh, their own ethnic group, their own tribe. And so politics became uh, tribal. Voting patterns are predictable along ethnic lines. You have tensions that uh, were age old, now cropping up again and again in newer forms. Uh, and that failure uh, to build cohesion is now, we find it exploited, uh, whether by politicians seeking their own personal gain, whether it be outsiders or uh, jihadists trying to exploit openings where they can. We see that in Somalia, where uh, Shabab often goes for uh, minority clans or those out of power uh, as recruiting targets. We see that in the Sahel, where communities that are in conflict, uh, you know, the jihadists will favor one or the other uh, and exploit those divisions, uh, those grievances. We certainly see that in Mozambique, where, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the sense of ex marginalization of uh, Cabo Delgado, the northernmost province of Mozambique, has been exploited by this Islamic State affiliate to now essentially uh, not only engage in a insurgency that has displaced well over uh, a half a million people, but also threatens the economic uh, well-being of the country and the two largest investments that the country has ever had in, in projects by Total and ExxonMobil in uh, natural gas development. You know, Peter, I I, I, I take your point and, and I don't disagree with you, but I'm going to push back just a little bit. So in a country like Nigeria, it is indeed difficult for a Muslim Hausa or Fulani in the north to feel united with a Yoruba in the south um, and for even a Yoruba in the south to feel united with uh, an Igbo in Biafra uh, to, the, to the east hard for them all to feel like fellow Nigerians, lots of things to balkanize them. But I think one could, and but, but two things. One is that it's not like the, the, the colonials who are drawing up the, the borders and who are really introducing the very concept of nation states into Africa. I don't think there was quite that concept. Empires, yes, nation states, no, that they could have, because if you take a country like Nigeria, how many if you wanted to divide it along ethnic tribal lines, there'd be dozens of countries in Nigeria, too, too many to do. At the same time, take Somalia, which one could argue Somalia is a country. Uh, the Somalis have much in common culturally, linguistically, in other ways. And yet it's today split into three or three, essentially three different Somalias. Um, I'm not sure you can blame that on the legacy of colonialism. And Ethiopia itself was really an empire. It was conquered by European empire, fascist Italy for what? I don't know, less than a less than 10 years, I think. Yet today, the various peoples of Ethiopia, and that's what they are, continue to fight among themselves. So I'm not disagreeing with you entirely, but I'm saying there's it's, it's not just the legacy of colonialism that's at work here. 
No, uh, it's also the failure to build nation states. You know, at, at, at some point, I think one has to get past the discussions of his history always influences the present, but one has to also have uh, the statesmen who've been there uh, since independence and the current one, they have a responsibility of their own. And one sees the fail those failures, unfortunately, far too often uh, more than the, the successes. Yeah, I, I think we should talk about South Africa a little bit. In recent days, there's been a, there have been riots, hundreds of people killed. This is, I think, in response to decades of really enormous uh, corruption and maladministration. Uh, South Africa was hugely in the news when the problem was apartheid. Now that the problem is not apartheid, now that the problem is indigenous, uh, the news media seem to me to be much less interested. Uh, well, I think the, the, the problem has been effect, uh, is that the uh, in, in South Africa, you've had essentially, for all intents and purposes, uh, since the arrival of uh, majority rule, uh, effectively a one-party government, with the exception of, the, of uh, the, the Western Cape, which has been ruled by the Democratic Alliance, a liberal uh, uh, opposition party. M- for the most part, most of South Africa has been governed by one party, the, the, African, National, uh, the African National Congress, the ANC. But the ANC itself uh, uh, is a rather uh, antiquated dinosaur. Uh, it may have succeeded in putting an end to apartheid, but it, re- but it replaced it with uh, a system where deploying the cadres, where being a party member, being connected to the party was more important than actual competence uh, uh, for taking on jobs. Uh, and there's a vast amount of corruption. In fact, uh, the most recent riots, uh, looting uh, that you're referring to, came about because the Constitutional Court of South Africa ordered former President Jacob Zuma jailed for 15 months for uh, contempt of court, for, fa- ref- for refusing to appear when he was properly summoned to a judicial investigation of corruption that he had engaged in while in office. And uh, in response to that, Zuma and his supporters, who still constitute an important block within the ANC, stoked up the, their base, which is predominantly uh, Zulu, uh, uh, the ethnic group to which Jacob Zuma belonged. And as a result, tens of thousands of businesses have been looted, many of them never probably to, uh, to return uh, throughout not just KwaZulu-Natal, but also in Johannesburg and, and other areas. You know, I mentioned there's there's more than 50, I think the UN figures, 54 countries in in Africa. They're all interesting. They're all complex. Almost all of them are troubled. Um, Maybe we'll go through just a few and and you'll give me some just some brief thoughts. Uh, One of the things that 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 seems to be a, 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 a problem brewing is the dispute between Egypt and Ethiopia over the the Renaissance Dam. You want to tell us just a little bit about that? Well, uh, Ethiopia, uh, over the course of the the last... Now, uh, a couple of things. Uh, I think one has to step back. The the, the Nile flow... Ethiopia contributes well over 80% of the Nile waters. Uh, yet it uses very little of them uh, up to date. And uh, so the former Ethiopian, uh, the late former Ethiopian... Prime Minister Mella started a project where Ethiopians themselves, without World Bank, without the International Union, bought bonds to build this enormous, and it is a remarkable feat of engineering. I've been out there. Uh, just, uh, just 10 miles from the Sudanese border, this massive dam, which is a hydroelectric dam, by the way, so the waters will flow uh, to regulate uh, the flow of the waters and to generate electricity, which will be enough to cover Ethiopia's needs and actually have some for export. In fact, they've even built transmission lines to export power to Sudan as well. Now, there's a catch to this, and this is what often doesn't get told. The catch to this is that back in the 1950s, back when it was still uh, uh, colonial uh, rule before the independence of Egypt and Sudan. Great Britain, as the uh, colonial master, 
partition the waters of the Nile, allocating it between the two countries, even though the water came from Ethiopia for the most part and some from Uganda and Rwanda and other countries on the other part. Uh, the, the, and rather than partitioning the waters by percentage of the flow, they gave absolute numbers. Uh, the bulk to Egypt and a smaller portion to Sudan. Now, because the waters of the Nile flow in a, uh, the rains come, they come in a big flood, and then it's dry for eight months. Uh, Sudan has never used its full quota of the water that it's entitled to. Uh, it just flows, comes all at once, useless, and then goes away and it's dry. But with the Ethiopian dam, in the long term, what's going to happen is that the water is going to flow evenly for 12 months, which means Sudan is going to get to, uh, the water and it will be able to use it, the water that it's allocated under the treaty uh, year round. What's known as the Gazira area of Sudan uh, between the Blue Nile and the White Nile, which has one growing season currently, will have three growing seasons. So it's great for Sudan. The problem is Egypt has been benefiting from Sudan's fit, un, inability to use its water. Egypt consumes its entire allotment of the Nile, plus roughly two-thirds of the Sudanese allotment. So the Sudanese start using their allotment that they're, they're entitled by treaty to, uh, which will, will happen eventually with the Ethiopian Dam. Egypt's water supply is cut by 20%. Wow, that is that is fascinating. All right, I'm going to ask you about one more country. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why. And then as my exit question, I'm going to ask you what I haven't talked about, what countries you are very much in your mind that you'd like to say a little bit about. The country that, that I'm going to talk about a little bit is Chad, because I spent quite a bit of time there when I was a correspondent for the New York Times in Africa covering uh, civil wars, but with the rebels backed by, by, by Libya under Muammar Gaddafi at, at that time. And I particularly remember going out into the into the desert with combatants to see battlefields uh, that, where they had been fighting. And I, the little mission I was on was led by a kind of romantic young officer with sunglasses and a long scarf by the name of Idris Deby, who later, as you know, became the president, pretty much the president for life. But his life was recently ended. He was out there in the north with his troops, and it appears he was shot and killed by, by the rebels. Um, his son, General Muhammad, was installed by the military as the country's leader after him and the head of the armed forces. Um, what are your? Th I'm curious to know your thoughts. Can General Muhammad uh, manage to hold the country together, um, or is it going to fall apart under him? What do you see happening with, 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 with Chad, which which has been, an, although it's not a well-known country, it has been an important country for France and the West in terms of the fight against jihadism? Uh, Chad has certainly been a linchpin of security in Central Africa as well as the Sahel. And uh, the late President uh, Idris Deby Itno certainly cultivated that uh, assiduously to make uh, himself the indispensable man uh, uh, in the region and certainly uh, contributed. Uh, Chadian forces have fought in Mali and other, uh, in other countries uh, against jihadists and other sorts. So it made itself, but I think this is the where long-term uh, and short-term, which we've been talking about, come to, it, he made himself so valuable and the French relied so much on him that, in fact, uh, you know, at his death, uh, French President Macron showed up at the funeral and eulogized the, uh, the president for life, who last year made himself a marshal, uh, uh, complete with baton and cape, uh, uh, eulogized him uh, in a way that was, frankly, uh, almost embarrassing. Uh, uh, but I think it's it's very short-sighted because long-term, is that sustainable? Uh, certainly for the short-term and intermediate term, we hope that uh, the sun manages to hold it together. But whether it is a stable structure, uh, I, have my, I have my reservations. I hope for the best, but uh, I, I worry about sustainability, which is, uh, uh, I think, a, a key component. So what countries or what country uh, in Africa 
have I not brought up and not mentioned that's on your mind that you're either worrying about or studying or thinking about a lot? Well, Cliff, you know, we've, we've somewhat dwelt on all the challenges, the jihadism, the terrorism, uh, the political instability, civil conflict, uh, all these things. Uh, you know, I'd like to con- almost conclude on a more positive note and make the argument that Africa is important for our strategic interests, not just in the negative sense of combating jihadism, combating uh, instability, but for strategic reasons going into the tw- into the 21st century and beyond, uh, the mineral wealth of Africa. Uh, think about it. the Democratic Republic of the Congo, a place I spent a lot of time in uh, during my government service, uh, produces roughly two-thirds of the cobalt in the world uh, that we need. Uh, China currently produces 65% of the rare earth elements we need for permanent magnets. Uh, Which are useful in cars, useful in phones, useful in batteries, useful in, I mean, how important these are. Right. And outside of China, there are only three places in the world that currently produce those rare earth elements. Uh, Mountain Pass in California, uh, which is unfortunately Chinese-owned. Uh, Australia and Burundi. Uh, so one can go on and on on the strategic mineral side. On the population side, by 2050, one in four working age persons in the entire world is going to be an African. That's either a tremendous opportunity in the youth boat or a tremendous challenge. It could go either way. So for all these and many other strategic reasons, uh, I think Africa has an enormous potential and certainly is in our interest to keep it uh, far, you know, front and, more front and center and certainly not way back in the back burner. Uh, enormously important point you're making there. Peter Ambassador Fam, always an education to talk with you and fun too. Uh, let's continue the conversation. Until then, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Cliff, and look forward to continuing our conversation. And thanks to all of you who have been with us as well today here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpolicy at FDD. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.